Good morning, everyone. You notice any difference this morning from last week? I have my mic on. Yeah, small steps, small steps of accomplishment. Thank you very much. Yes, 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 yes. All right, for my second act. We are in the book of John, chapter 4, and if you remember two weeks ago, we ended at the very beginning of chapter 4 with this conversation that Jesus is having with this woman of Samaria. And that week, we looked at the difficulties and challenges that had been going on between the southern part of Israel and the northern part of Israel, which was where Samaria was. For over 975 years, they had hated each other because of this division that took place after Solomon's death. And there was great confusion on the part of the Samaritan woman when Jesus went up to her and asked for a glass of water. She said in verse 9 of chapter 4, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from the woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. In the following text, which really kind of goes to the end of the chapter, but we're going to take it in two parts, one this week and one next week, Jesus builds off of that conversation, off of that moment, after that point in time, to truly demonstrate that no matter what circumstance he is in, it is not an ordinary circumstance. In fact, it's a circumstance in which he reveals himself with absolute clarity that he is indeed the Messiah and that he indeed is the overcoming God King right in front of her. You see, we go through life with every day sometimes feeling like a routine. Has anyone ever had a, a week that just felt like a routine? And if you were asked, hey, what'd you do last week? You said, well, I just kind of did the same stuff I did the week before, the same stuff I did the week before that, the same stuff I'm gonna do this week, it just feels like it's the same thing over and over and over. In fact, I have a somewhat inconsistent habit of calling and talking to my mom once a week. And she will always start the conversation with, so what's going on? And I go, you remember when we talked last week? Pretty much the same thing, just new dates. Um, because for our lives, there's a lot of consistency, and that consistency breeds um, sometimes the feeling that everything is ordinary. Everything is the same. Jesus goes and asks this lady for a glass of water, which is probably the most mundane, un you know, basically average type of thing. Yes, he's asking a woman who would not expect it, but it's simply a glass of water. He turns that moment where there's tension between her and all Jews and Jews and her, turns that into evangelism. And you're gonna say, how in the world does Jesus turn asking for a cup of water to an enemy into a turn of evangelism and a moment of presenting the truth of who Jesus Christ is and the love of the Father? How does he do that? It is because he looks at every situation, every moment, including just simply getting a glass of water, and it is an amazing moment for him to interact with people that need Jesus, that need him. 
So there's not an ordinary moment in Jesus' life. Every moment is extraordinary and filled with the potential of bringing God glory, and the same is true of us. We have that opportunity to the world around us, to that maybe hated enemy of 975 years, to talk about a glass of water leading to a conversation about faith in Jesus Christ. So let's see how he does this. And we're going to look at the first five verses here, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 through 15. Let me read those, and then we're going to go back. Uh, we read, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drink from it himself, as did he and his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, and the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. So Jesus answers her initial question. Why are you asking me for a drink of water? And it's kind of surprising, his answer, isn't it? His answer is not, well, because, you know, we really are related and we have this common ground and we have this common history and it's about time that we start making peace. No. He says, I'll tell you something. If you had any concept of who I was, you would be asking me for water. Her response is very natural to that. All right, at the very beginning, I saw you here. You have no rope. You have no bucket. You don't even know how to probably draw water out of a well. You're a Hebrew. You probably don't know very much about living in the wilderness. <laughs> how are you going to get water for yourself, let alone get me water? Somehow are you more special than the rest of history that somehow you can just bring water? And Jesus' answer is, well, yeah. I am, I'm incredibly special. I mean, I'm not tooting my own horn, but guess what? I can give you such relief that you would never have to drink again, and it would be called eternal life. So very naturally, she says, hey, let me get some of this water, because in her mind, she's thinking, and she says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come over here and draw water again. 100% normal, natural, but very ordinary. In her mind and in her thinking, if there is a way that I can get a cup of magic water so that I can feed my livestock, I can cook, I can have water to drink at the house, and I can have water to bathe, if I only need one cup and I never have to come here again, yes, I want that magic special cup of living water because I am tired of every day looking the same in the morning, in the afternoon and in the evening, making a trip out of town to this well to draw water. It is tiring, and I only have another 40 years of doing this. 
yes, give me the magic cup of water. Of course, this entire time, Jesus is not speaking of physical water. He's not. He's talking about spiritual water. You see, he takes every ordinary greeting and moment and interaction with a person, and he turns it into a spiritual lesson. He did that to Nicodemus. You must be born again. What? I don't understand that. that that's impossible. Yeah, it is impossible for man, but it's not impossible for God. You need to have new life, regenerate. And you should have known that from the very beginning because it's in the Old Testament, and you're a teacher of the law. He's going to this woman, you need something that I have to give you, and it's living water that brings eternal life. He's not talking physically. He's not talking baptism. He's not talking about a big gulp drink. He's not talking about a cold water. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about spiritual life that only Christ can give. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but in John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus not only equates himself to living water that we saw already in, that, in our text, but he says in chapter 6, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for, that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus has water to give, he has his body to give, and in both situations he says, what I give you is me, and when I give you me, you have eternal life. And you will never need another eternal life. You will never need, never, never, I need to drink of water. You will never need another savior. You'll never need more living water. You'll never need more living bread. I'm the one. I'm all you need. And when you have me, you have the fullness of me and you have the fullness of eternal life. You don't need more. You don't need another religion. You don't need a new religion. You don't need a new take on Christianity. You just simply need Jesus. He is the living water and the living bread. And if you go, well, my goodness, is that the only message I'm going to hear for 30, 40, 50 years of my Christian life? Yes, I pray that it is the only message you hear in the 40, 50, 60 years of your Christian life. You don't need any other Savior. You don't need any other way to God. You don't need any other eternal life. You don't need any other salvation but Jesus Christ. It is that simple, but it is not ordinary. It is extraordinary because it changes you from death to life. It changes you from a life of sin to a life of holiness, a life of disobedience to a life of obedience, from a life of filth to a life of purity, from a life of thinking about yourself to a life of loving others first, from a life of holding grudges to a life of forgiveness. And the only way to get from here to there is through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ, and you only need him and him alone as Savior. You need nothing more. That is why he says you will never thirst again. You will never hunger again. If you have me, you have everything. Amen? Amen. Amen. And then in John chapter 7, verse 39, I believe Jesus explains 
what it means, this living, what this living water is. And I'm just going to read a few verses here, and I'm not going to describe it too much because I want to save a lot of it when we get to John chapter 7, but it's super important for our context this morning. He's talking about living water. And in verse 37 of John chapter 7, he says, On the very last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Very similar to what he's talking to the Samaritan woman about in chapter 4. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow, what a beautiful imagery. If we submit to Christ and fall upon our knees and ask him for forgiveness and he grants that to us, and we have faith and new life, and we have new, uh, been born again, and we're regenerate, and we've been moved from this kingdom of darkness to this kingdom of light. Jesus says, your life will no longer be ordinary. It will be a source of living water, which in a dry desert climate, it's better than having gold. I think if you, you know, I'm going to show my ignorance about ranching and farming, but I imagine if you gave a rancher or a farmer the option of having a well of water that never ran dry and had no limits. You can use as much of it as you want. Or $10,000 worth of gold coins. But you can't sell those gold coins, you just gotta keep them. What are you gonna do? You can't drink gold coins to quench your thirst, you can't feed it to the animals, you can't water your flocks with it, or your, or your um, what do they call those things? Fields. No, I wasn't looking for pasture. That's a very fancy word. I was looking for a real basic word, fields. You can't water any of that with gold coins. But living water, an undrainable source of life-giving water is essential for life. And so Jesus, in that same chapter 7, explains what the living water actually is. It's not physical water says in verse 39, now this he said, everything he's talking about living water, about the Spirit, who those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus is talking about when you have faith in him, when you believe in him, when you accept him as your Lord and Savior, this amazing transformation takes place in your life where you are now satisfied with this whole process of what's the true religion and how do I truly get close to God, it's solved. Because God gives you his spirit to indwell you. And it is, as Jesus says, it's like having living water gushing forth. You are a source of life and inspiration and challenge and encouragement and beauty to the world around you. Not because of yourself, but because of what God has given and granted you through Christ. That is the living water. Now, as interesting as it might be to kind of have living water and never have to go and uh, take from a well again and have your thirst satisfied, your hunger sort of satisfied, your spirit satisfied, simply telling people the good news, like Jesus is to the Samaritan woman, that I'm here, if you asked me, I would give it to you, you'd have eternal life. Simply telling people sometimes you can have eternal life 
doesn't have a real strong impact on them. And I know that because I've told people before, you need to have eternal life. You need to believe in Jesus. And the number of cold stone looks that I've gotten and ignoring and distancing has far outnumbered the number of people that said, oh, finally, someone has come here and told me, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, like 100 to 1. So Jesus, being God, knows that in order for this water, these words, eternal life to be sweet and to be desired, maybe he's going to have to tell her something she doesn't want to hear. She's going to talk about sin. Jesus reveals her sin in the very next section. And you might think, well, that's kind of mean of him to talk about her past like that. And we'll get into that. But the whole point of it is, if you don't know that you need a Savior, it doesn't matter how beautiful you may present him in a gospel. If they don't know they have a need, okay, it's just one religion and another religion. It's just something else to add. But Jesus goes to the heart of it. The sweetness of the gospel and the fact that it can satisfy your thirst and hunger spiritually is because we have a need. Our need is that we are sinners. We are sinners by nature and by practice. We love sin. We hide in it. We, we, <laughs> we deceive others regarding it. Jesus said way back in John chapter 1, the light came into the world, but the world loved darkness. So it hid itself. It doesn't want to hear about the light. But Jesus knows this woman needs the gospel, so he shows her her need in a very interesting way. So Jesus says, go and tell your husband to come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What I said to you is true. The woman said to him, sir, understatement of the year, I perceive that you are a prophet. See, at first glance, Jesus is talking about living water, and then he goes into, hey, let's bring your husband out. Where's that connection? That connection is very clear in Jesus' conversation with her. I'm going to show you why you need living water. I've told you, you can have it. But I'm going to show you now why you need it. Let's talk to your husband. Uh, don't really got one right now. Yeah, you're right. You've been married in and out of marriage relationships for five times, plus you got an extra one on the side right now that isn't even your husband. If that would not humble her in her tracks and go, you're right, I need the Savior and salvation and religion and relationship with God that you're talking about because on my own, I've accomplished nothing but sin. I've, I've created nothing but a lifestyle of this cycle of relationship and no relationship, relationship and no relationship. And you're right. You're right, Jesus. You just opened up the box, that closet, and the light has shone into the darkness of my heart, and you've revealed to me your sin, my sin. That's what Jesus is doing here. And the lady, having her sin exposed, should have said, 
Save me from this. Save me from it. Or tell me again, as you're telling like a three-year-old, how do I get close to God? Explain it more to me. I don't fully understand it. Instead, she starts out with this idea, hey, I clearly see that you're a prophet. I understand that you have insight that no one else has. And then, <laughs> then she deflects. Because that's what's normal. That's what normal when, when you reveal someone's sin or when someone's sin is revealed, all of a sudden there's this wall and this block and this deflection like, okay, we're going to talk about something else. And so she does. She immediately changes the subject, which you know Jesus now has hit a sore spot. He's really gotten down to the matter of her sin before God. She is not good enough on her own to satisfy the needs of salvation. She can't do it. That sore, that sin has been exposed, and her natural response is to deflect. And so she says in verse 20, uh, all the way through 23, this, this section, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Okay, where's that been in the whole conversation? Did you, did, nowhere in that first uh, 20-some verses is worship being talked about or the mountains, or the holy place of Jerusalem, or, or anything. We know that there's a division between the Samaritans and the Jew, but that's all we know in the text. And all of a sudden, boom, you revealed sin. Well, let's talk about something completely different. See, they didn't have football or baseball teams to talk about back then. They, they had weather to talk about, but no one knew what the weather was going to be, so there's really no way for them to say, hey, you know, later on this week it's going to be beautiful. So... They have no other way to deflect the questions. So the way she deflects it is says, okay, I'm going to get to the root of our problem here. The root of the problem between the Jews and the Samaritans is our style of worship, how we worship. Because right now it's getting a little too personal, so I'm going to put up a roadblock. I'm going to deflect the sin situation about my husband's, and we're going to go to a completely different topic because here I know my sin won't be revealed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, Jesus is going to do just that again. So, in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, oh, I think it is important to note that in 975 B.C., when the two, um, when the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom split, and the northern kingdom, the headquarters of it was the town called Samaria, and we don't know where that is today. It's been lost to the deserts of time and uh, <laughs> two major invasions into northern Israel. But they did have a mountain that they thought was the mountain where Isaac was being offered as a sacrifice to Abraham. They believed that. And so they thought that was a really holy place. So they did all their worship there. Uh, plus, the northern kingdom also did all their worship everywhere else because they erected tons of idols and um, uh, sacrifices to foreign gods. So they worshiped everywhere. But this one mountain kind of was their go-to mountain. It was not Jerusalem. So Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So right away, Jesus says, the two mountains, the two places of this is holy is not going to matter. See, he's already talking about him completely fulfilling all of the Old Testament laws, rules, regulations, and ceremonies and no longer will you have to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice. No longer will you have to go to Jerusalem 
to hear the priest talk about God's word. No longer will you have to go to Jerusalem to pray. There is nothing going to be special about the city of Jerusalem at some point, Jesus says. There's going to be a time where neither mountain is the mountain of celebrated worship. He goes on to say, you worship what you do not know. He's speaking to the lady here at the well, the woman. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, before you think, oh, my word, Jesus, that sounds really arrogant, right? I mean, I don't know who you're worshiping, but we know who we're worshiping because all salvation comes from the Jews. I can just see this woman. If she was not getting uncomfortable when Jesus started talking about her husband's, I can imagine her blood pressure just took a spike. And in her mind, she's probably thinking, I knew it. This Jew thinks he's a Jew. Super special. You know, like, like oh, yeah, here it is. Yeah, there's no salvation apart from the Jews. Um, you know I'm not going to disagree with what Jesus says, right? So there is a reason why Jesus says exactly this, because he's absolutely right. Salvation does come from the Jews because this book, until the last couple chapters, like the chapter of Acts and on, is all about how God revealed himself to this one guy, Abraham, making him a Hebrew of Hebrews. And giving a promise to this one guy to have a promised land in this property that they didn't even know what was called, but would one day be called Israel. And through this one man, every nation would be blessed under heaven, knowing that salvation was given to the world through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through the words, work, and testimony of Moses, through the word, work, and testimony of all the judges, all the kings, all the prophets, leading ultimately to the king of kings and lord of lords, who was Jewish. And they named him Emmanuel, God with us. Jehovah saves Jesus. The promise was made to a particular nation that they would bless the world. Jesus, unlike some paintings I've seen of him that make him look like a blonde-haired, white-eyed hippie, he looked like a Jew. Dark skin, dark complexion, and Isaiah tells us he didn't even look very good. You never would have picked him to be a clothing spokesman as a model. He looked average or below average. He didn't look fancy and beautiful. But the promises, the law, the history, all comes through the most insignificant people at the time, the Jews, the smallest nation, the weakest nation, maybe unattractive nation, I don't know, but they had nothing to give the world as far as power or wealth, but what they had to give, God, God manifested 
in this small, insignificant country and people and nation a blessing for all of us. That is Christ. So he's absolutely right that this process of salvation, this entire plan has come through the Jewish nation. And then Jesus says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and it is now here. He's talking about he's now here. All the promises are fulfilled. He's the last prophet, priest, and king. It's him. Everything has been leading up to this. So the time is now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father wants people to worship. The Father wants people to listen to his word, to pray, and to sing. But he's looking for people that are not Jewish or Samaritan. He's looking for people who, when they come to the Father, they come to the Father in spirit and in truth. That means that living water has to be part of us. That new life, that change that he told Nicodemus about, that he's telling this lady about, that he talks about in John chapter 6, that he talks about in John chapter 7, all of this new life kind of language, the person that God wants to worship him is the person who's had this life-changing event where they've been faced with their sin and they say, I can't do it. Only God and only Christ can satisfy the law's demands. I can't be perfect enough for Jesus. And my relationship with Jesus is not based on what nationality I am. It's not based on my qualities whatsoever. It doesn't matter whether or not I've been in, born in America or China. God does not care what language we speak, what nationality we are, or how we look. What he wants from his worshipers is someone who has had that life-changing event take place, and it needs to be accompanied with truth. Which means when I worship God, I have to acknowledge the truth about God and the truth about myself. That I'm not here to sing praises to myself. I'm not here to sing praises to my ancestors, to my family. I'm not here to sing a song because it was grandma's favorite song. Grandma should have nothing to do with it because the song should be all be, oh, this was so important, I just messed it up. The song should be only important about one person, God. That is the memory you should have in your mind. That is the thought you should have in my, your mind. That is the emotion that you should have in your mind that God has revealed himself and I am declaring to him his greatness through these words. Any other thought during that song, you've started to slowly move from the idea of worshiping God in truth because it's not about us. Our worship is about him. And God says, Jesus says, that's the kind of people my father wants. The people who are dependent upon me for salvation and the people who are guided and measured by my word so that they might see me rightly and sing about me rightly. Lastly, I'm just going to... Um, Put this together in verse 24 through 26, the last section that we're looking at this morning, how Jesus reveals himself. So he says in verse 24 following, God is spirit, meaning he doesn't have a body like us. He doesn't look like a, a Santa Claus with a gray old beard sitting on a throne in a white robe. That's not how he looks. He's spirit. 
He does not have any physical body like we do. God is spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I am who speak to you, am he. That's me. That's me. She probably already had a sense that this guy is talking in a way that is revolutionary, that is hard to understand. It's hard to put into place that this Jew who doesn't even know how to get water out of a well, all of a sudden is talking about my personal life in such a way that brings conviction, and he speaks with authority. And he's awesomely compassionate because he's showing me the way to salvation. That's not based upon how you were born, but who you turn to for eternal life. I think this in part leads Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 to say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable, inexplicable, unexplainable gift. Paul gets to the point as he's talking about Jesus and the gospel and, and the effect of it in our lives, real application where he just ends on this note in this chapter, in chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, almost as if he's got nothing else to say, but isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he beyond our expectation? Doesn't he do way more than we could think or ask? Doesn't he bring amazing comfort? Doesn't he bring amazing conviction? Doesn't he bring amazing forgiveness? You know, I want you to know very personally and without any drama, I want you to listen to these words with attentiveness. There is not a single one of you, a single one of you, that is good enough for God on your own. Not a single one of you are good enough. And don't worry trying, you'll never be good enough. Maybe this is that light revealing darkness moment. And I don't know what the darkness is, I don't know what the story is in your life, Maybe five husbands, I don't know. Maybe pornography, or gambling, or drinking, or, or lust, or envy, or hatred, or anger, or bitterness. I don't know what it is. But whatever Jesus can shine into our life of darkness, he reveals for a purpose and a reason that he might give us what we need to be right with God, starting with the Spirit, life. And I want you to have that new life. 
So as we stand and sing our last song, I want you to, to put these words and your heart appreciation for this undescribable gift. And I want you to just let the worship out. Okay? All right, let's stand and sing.